0: If you would open your copy of Scriptures and join me, today we're going to be looking at John chapter 5, as Joel mentioned, and in particular we're looking at verses 16 through 47. Now I'll just say this in advance, I don't know how far we're going to make it in this. Um, There is the tendency for me to get lost in the minutia, which is really exciting to me if you haven't noticed already, Um, and it's not that minutia is bad or it's insignificant. But I can, I can easily get wrapped up in all the nuances. But the other extreme is then to flatten out things and to suppress the significance of what's taking place in Scripture in order to just get to points quickly. And the weight of an argument comes in understanding the opposition to that argument and the ways in which that argument answers questions raised by those who are opposing it. And so, this is where we find ourselves this morning in John chapter 5 and verse 16. As we saw last week, Jesus, in the first 15 verses of this chapter, has healed a man who was an invalid for 38 years. He told that man to get up, take up his bed, and walk. Now, the man, we don't know the full nature of his infirmity, but he does say that he doesn't have anyone to carry him down into the water when it is stirred, and so therefore he's beyond hope of ever being healed. Well, Jesus speaks a word, and the man is instantly healed and then gets up and walks. The problem was that this was done on the Sabbath, and this man carrying his mat through the temple is confronted by Jewish leaders who were really, they were the hall monitors of the temple. Let's just call them what they were. They were very careful about making sure that people were following the law. And on the Sabbath, if you were a Jew, you were not supposed to do anything. You were to prepare for the Sabbath. It was to be a day of inactivity. It could be a day of worship, but you were not to carry anything. You were to do no work. And so that's what prompts all that follows in the rest of the chapter. Jesus is going to answer their concerns and their anger over the fact that He worked on the Sabbath. So we pick up in verse 16, and we are told there, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, and that word answered in the Greek is really Jesus used a word or John used a word here to say that Jesus is going to begin or began a legal argument, which I think is really interesting. You know, these guys are law followers. They're the policemen of the Jewish faith, making sure everyone's crossing their T's and dotting their I's and they are hawks and they have a complaint of violating the law, and so Jesus is going to make an argument that is a legal argument. He's going to use the law, and he is going to use the criteria of the law of having two or three witnesses that verify the truth of a narrative, a story of the accounts of an event. We see that in verses 31 through 47. Jesus brings forth testimony from various witnesses, his father, John the Baptist, the works that he's doing, and the words of the Father. Four witnesses, when the law only required two or three. We see Jesus state a case in verses 19 through 30 of making the argument that there is such a unique relationship that he has with the Father that allows him to do this without violating the law. Jesus is going to defend himself against the paramount lawyers of his day. And so Jesus answered them. And notice how he answers them in verse 17. My father is working until now, and I am working. Now, that's a huge, huge statement, and we have to address it. But let's read on a little bit more. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. John is writing to Jews, and Jews both that grew up within Judaism and Jews that grew up in other parts of the Roman Empire, and what are called Hellenist Jews, who didn't have the culture, who didn't have the right upbringing as the Jews who lived in Palestine did. They were more secular. And so he is making it very clear in verse 18 the significance of what Jesus said in verse 17. He gives us kind of his own editorial remarks explaining to us why is it that the Jews were upset that Jesus healed a man. Forget the Sabbath. Why why are they upset that he healed a man? Well, because it was on the Sabbath. When Jesus says, my father's working and I'm working, why does that bother them? Well, verse 18 tells us, that Jesus was calling himself the Son of God. Now, here's something that we don't know automatically about Jews. They weren't opposed to calling God our Father in the collective sense. They were the people of God. They were the children of God. That was not an issue. The issue was that Jesus took a very personal approach. He said, he is my Father, a personal unique, familial relationship. That was the problem. Jesus, no one would speak like that. For these Jewish ears, they heard the holy, infinite God is equal with a flawed and finite man. That's how they heard this. You have dumbed down our God And you've done this in the temple? That is blasphemy. That is worthy of death. And this is why they were seeking all the more to persecute him. And these words that Jesus was calling God his own father, that Jesus was healing and breaking the Sabbath, those are both verbs that have this ongoing sense. So what we see as an occasion for all this in chapter 5 This man was healed on a Sabbath. It seems a random event. John wants us, the readers that he wrote in Greek, they would understand this thing kept happening over and over again. Jesus was not at all afraid to heal somebody or to do a good work on a Sabbath. And this wasn't the only time that Jesus pointed out the unique relationship he claimed to have with God a relationship that was blasphemous to them. And therefore, Jesus is doing this. This wasn't just viewed as, okay, he he's a little off today, but then it never happened again. We'll we'll deal with that one-time offense. No, this is an ongoing problem, which is why they are constantly persecuting him. That is the background for where we're at in the Gospel of John. And then what Jesus does in verses 19 through 30 is he defines not only his relationship with God, but he describes how it is that this relationship has to bear witness to itself. Now, in our culture, there are so many differences between our culture and what Jesus explains here, which is what makes this so laborious in making the points. We have sons who don't obey their dads. We got fathers who aren't worthy of following We've got partial obedience, which is really disobedience. And this all confuses exactly the nature of the father and the son, a nature, a culture that was of the ancient Jews. The father would be represented in his society by the behavior of his sons. They were, in, they were to be a reflection of his good name. <clears throat> Children, you hearing me? When you go into school, when you're with your friends in the mall or in the park, when you're hiking all alone in the Black Hills, the things that you do, the way you talk, is a reflection on your parents. Now, that's not to make it a salvation event, that's not to say about any heavy burdens. This is just the nature. People will meet you and they will draw conclusions about your parents. And in the ancient world, that was taken a whole lot more seriously than it is today. And so when Jesus says that he and his father had this unique relationship, and then he says in verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you, three times he will use this phrase, and that's just a That's just him saying, not that the stuff I've said already is not true, but guys, lean into what I'm about to say because you need to know this truth. Here's the truth I say to you. The son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. You see what he's talking about? He's talking about, the the intimacy of knowledge and proximity. This is not remote education. Jesus has been with the Father to such an extent that he doesn't just remember things his dad taught him, he exactly imitates the things his dad taught him. And in fact, it goes beyond just mere imitation to a self-governance. Jesus says, I cannot nor will I do anything other than what my Father has told me to do. That's a whole nother world. He goes on. Not only does He say He's imitating the Father and that He is going to do likewise, but look at verse 20. He says, the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. This isn't a A Father, we don't have a heavenly Father who's only kind of revealed part of himself to his Son. Jesus knows everything about the Father because the Father has invited him in to observing all that he has done. The Father indeed loves the Son. Now, again, I'm telling you things that are We understand the language, but there is a real significance behind this because Jesus has so coupled himself with the Father in heaven that it is blasphemy. And when he says, I'm only doing what I've seen him do, it raises the question, are you kidding me? You're breaking the law. You're a man. And now you're going to tell me that God loves you? So let me ask you this question. Have you thought about, does God rest from work on the Sabbath? He gave the law to Moses. On the seventh day, you shall rest. Cease from all work. You're not allowed to gather firewood. You're not allowed to cook. It's a day of holy rest. It shall be this way for all your generations. So is God resting on the Sabbath? We're told in Genesis... 2 and verses 2 and 3, that on the seventh day, God rested from his creative work. And so as we think about how, how does this work, God stopped creating after six days and rested. Does that mean the Sabbath was a day of inactivity as it came to be purported by the Jews? Well, think about it this way. And thankfully, a lot of people who are smarter than us have thought about it. So let me tell you what they think. It's this logical argument. If God is sovereign over all creation and he decides to check out every seventh day, then all creation that's held together by the very power of his word as we see in Colossians would go into chaos. I mean, let's just look at our own homes for a moment here, folks. When the parents are away, what happens with the kids? It's like Lord of the Flies, right? You come home, and they're like wanting to beat each other up, All the, there's a mess everywhere, they're into stuff they're not supposed to be. If God took his hands off the steering wheel and just set everything on autopilot, this world would not be able to function. There is no argument that God does indeed work on the Sabbath. Jewish historian Philo and many other Jewish rabbis, their writings are existing even today, and they recognize the fact that God has to work on the Sabbath, or else everything would fall into chaos, and that God is not guilty of breaking His own law by doing so. And they, they came up with two arguments for the reason for this. The Sabbath, there was a prohibition, prohibition against carrying anything outside of your house. Well, if all creation belongs to the Lord, and there's nothing outside of that which He has created, can He ever leave His home? No. No. He can, never, he can go from the furthest sites that the, the newest telescope has seen to all the places that it hasn't seen, that still exist, and He's never left His home. He's omnipresent. He's transcendent above it all. Another prohibition in the Sabbath law was lifting things. And let me just, here's what they say. God fills the whole world, and therefore He can lift nothing to a height greater than His own stature. I mean, that's how big our God is. Our God is so big that the dark recesses of space are inhabited by his presence as well as the dark recesses of our own hearts. Notice that Jesus isn't arguing that their Sabbath interpretations were wrong. Everyone seems to understand that God worked every day. What was the rub What blew their mind was the two things that Jesus said in verse 17. Claiming that God was his father and therefore he has a right to work. In his argument, Jesus attached himself to the father. All the rules that apply to God are rightly to be applied to Jesus as well since he is the father's son. What was his work? He told a man to get up and carry his bed. And that man was healed by the word of Jesus. Hebrews 4, 3 through 10 tells us that the Old Testament Sabbath pointed to a greater rest for God's people. A rest that surpassed the weekly rest. A rest that surpassed the rest promised in the promised land. The rest for the people of God that Hebrews talks about is the rest that is fulfilled by faith in Jesus Christ a rest from dead works a joyful participation in the salvation that Christ Jesus brings so then we see how the sabbath was made for man to point to a greater need that we that every week if sabbath comes on the saturday then every week we need that rest And that indicates to us a finiteness. But within our hearts is a longing for a greater rest that can only be fulfilled in Christ. Jesus called God his Father. And make no mistake, these men understood exactly what Jesus was doing. And so as he reveals himself... I want to show you the relationship that I alone possess with the Father. He does so in verses 19 and 30. These, this cultural uh, clash of theology and practicality are laid out in Jesus' arguments. He says, I know the Father. In another place in John chapter 14 in verse 7 and 9, we'll see in a few months that Jesus says, to know me is to know the Father. To see me is to see the Father. In other words, friends, as you read your New Testament, and as you read about Jesus' actions and interactions, his words and his deeds, you are being confronted with the living God. You are seeing the very heart of God in his character, his words, his actions, what we see in Christ is paralleled in the Father. That's what Jesus is saying. There's no, there is no fraction, there's no infinitesimal division between He and the Father. They are one and the same. And as you look at verses 19 through 22, Jesus supports this argument that He is the Son of God with four statements whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise, verse 19. Verse 20, the father loves the son and shows him all that he is doing. Here's the third argument Jesus makes in verse 21. Just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, in the Old Testament, Elijah did this, so also the son gives life to whom he will, in verse 21. And here's the the fourth way in which Jesus supports his argument that he is the son of God. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, if you remember correctly, Jesus is making an argument to prove what? You look at verse 23. We haven't read it yet. The Father judges no one, verse 22, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus has declared that the Son, by the Father's will, the Son will receive the same honor that the Father receives. And whoever refuses to honor the Son dishonors the Father. Again, this is another slap in the face to the Jews. Now, Jesus is not trying to provoke them to be oppositional. He's not just trying to make them angry. He's showing them something about Himself that is true about no one else. He is the unique Son of God, and therefore, He deserves a unique form of praise. Jesus declared that the work he's doing is actually the Father's work. They share the same mission and purpose. God works on the Sabbath, so must the Son. Neither are breaking laws since they own all of creation. How do we reconcile this? This idea that Jesus says, <clears throat> the glory that you say you give to the Father, you are supposed to give to me. How do we reconcile it with Isaiah 42.8 that says, I am the Lord That is my name, my glory I give to no other. But Jesus is not any other. John 10, 31, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And let's just take a pause for a moment, because I'm concerned that the heaviness of this, and heaviness by the doctrinal nature of it, the, the nuanced. But important realities that are being communicated could be lost on us. I don't want anyone to make the mistake of missing the point. Jesus is pointedly pointing out His unique personhood. That He is holy God. And I mean W-H-O-L-L-Y as well as H-O-L-Y. He is entirely God, and he is perfectly God. This, anybody else would say this? This is either insanity or it's true. There are no middle grounds for this. And for 99.999, it's all insanity. But about Jesus, this is true. He is the one And that means what he says is intended to be transformative for us. We have to rally ourselves around the truth of who Jesus is. Because if we don't, there is no way we can have eternal life and there is no way we will honor the Father. In fact, we will fall under his judgment. Philippians 2 You're probably familiar with these verses in verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You see, God's glory is not diminished by His Son because Jesus is the perfect representation of the Father. And what Jesus says next in verse 23 is either entirely true or entirely insane because He makes Himself equal with God. If you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. And so if you're a non-Christian, you're here today thank you for coming, but please hear what Jesus is saying. He is God. He's not a teacher like any teacher you've ever had. He's not just a great prophet, a great rabbi. He's not a miracle worker. He's not someone who was blessed or who was touched. He is God. And that that has to be wrestled with. You either have to reject his claims and therefore dismiss all of Christianity because they're built around this fundamental truth. Or you have to believe it. And and sometimes when we present the gospel, we fail to perhaps nuance this, the exclusive claims that Jesus makes about himself. Don't make the mistake. This is what separates Christianity apart from all other religions, be it Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Judaism, Islam, and many other religions, every other religion. Jesus is saying with understanding, knowledge of what he is claiming, I am divine. He is not one of many ways, he is the way. And all Christianity hangs on this truth. But he doesn't give any quarter to these Jews. And this hints at the sticking point between them. Because at John 12, 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Jesus's two truly, truly statements in verse 24 and 25 are declarations that he's speaking the whole truth and nothing but the truth. His words will separate those who belong to God, from those who don't. Christianity is as simple as this. You either believe what God says, or you don't. And if you don't, don't confuse the issue. You're not a Christian. If you do believe these words, you are a Christian, and therefore your life will model what it means to follow Christ, because there is a gratitude of receiving this truth that was undeserved, and was given uniquely by the Spirit to you. That will stir your heart to love and to good works. Jesus says, the Son who has the power to give eternal life and to judge will give life to those who hear and believe his word. Let's not forget what prompted all this. Jesus used his word to heal a man and now he's saying his word, if it is heard and believed, will produce in you a life that will endure after this physical life comes to an end. Verse 25. He makes it even clearer. An hour is coming and is now here in verse 25. The future resurrection of the, of the physically dead is the result of the present resurrection resurrection of the spiritually dead. You remember, go back to Pastor Tanner preaching through 1 Corinthians 15 on the significance of the resurrection. Well, this is what Jesus brings out here. The hope of every Christian is that there will be a bodily resurrection on the last day. And what is the foundation for that hope? It is Jesus' own resurrection, but it even predates that because Jesus predicted it here in John 5. And and this is is true, that we need a spiritual rebirth. Jesus said it in John 3 to Nicodemus, a great rabbi in the Jewish culture of that time. He says it to us today. You must be born again. And, And the evidence that indeed you have been born again looks like this. A young college student who grew up in the church all his life and yet rejected the truth, had no interest in spiritual things, is confronted by a holy God over his sinfulness and the pending destruction that awaited him. This path leads to death. And that young man repented of his sin and cried out for life. Life. Eternal life, like Christian does in Pilgrim's Progress. And immediately, what does God do for this one who, who had been spiritually dead and who is now brought to spiritual life? God gives them an insatiable desire for the Word of God. A belief in it. That was my experience. That, that's the experience of every Christian when you are converted, all things pass away, and behold, all things become new. There is an interest in spiritual truth because it is the word of life. The reason Jesus can say and do all this, according to verse 26, is because it's true. Like his Father, he has life in himself. God has always been. Think of this. God has never begun. There was never a time when God wasn't. And that means that in God is life. And Jesus is aligning himself with that same truth. In me is life. And the Father has given me the authority to give it to whom I will. And who are those to whom he will? But those who hear and believe. This is why how can anyone hear and receive the good news without hearing the good news? And how, how can they hear unless they be sent? And Adam and Deanna are going because they're being sent. We need to support missions. We need to understand that even if we are never going to go to Tanzania ourselves, that God has strategically placed each and every one of us here in Rapid City to be a light on the base, to be a light in the office, to be a light in the field, You are sent. And God desires to give life to the one He made in His image. That's why we as human beings are able to procreate, to give physical life to children, but Jesus alone can give eternal life. Verse 27 points out to the other half of this reality. Jesus says there, for as the, uh, sorry, and He has given Him. The Father has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him Who sent me? Jesus is completely clear about what he's saying here. Not only has the Father given the Son of God the authority to give eternal life, but the Father has also given the Son of God the authority to execute divine judgment. Jesus uses a term. You might see it capitalized in your English translation. Translation: It's the Son of Man. That's a title that comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. In one of his visions, God revealed to Daniel that there was one like the Son of Man. That means he was a human being who stood in the presence of the Ancient of Days. That is, unmistakably, the throne room of God. And this man was able to stand before the Holy God, and the Holy God gave him authority to execute judgment upon all the nations of the earth, and to destroy them, and to establish his kingdom that would fill the earth. This image was not lost on these Jewish listeners. Jesus has now declared himself to be the Son of God, divine, and then he marries those two terms, the Son of God with the Son of Man. And he says, they all find their fulfillment in me. That's why we sang that song that Joel introduced. All these Old Testament pictures that point to the greater fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus, he wants them to understand that the Son of Man in Daniel 7 hints at the incarnation. And the gospel makes it clear that Jesus was both fully man and fully God. He knows what it's like to be a human, to be rejected, to suffer. He knows what it's like to go hungry and to be exhausted by your work, to be misunderstood, to be persecuted. By adopting these two titles, Son of God and Son of Man, Jesus is emphasizing his humanity and his authority. He is God's judge. And as we've seen from verse 19 on, the Son of God has this unique relationship with the Father in order that He can reveal the Father to us. If Jesus had not come, there would be no eternal life for anyone. The psalmist says, who can ascend to the Most High, the hill of the Holy One of Israel? No one can. If God didn't stoop low To open up the scene, the screen, and show us who He was, we would not have known Him. Look around us. All of the nations that exist, some deny God, others worship animals. Others worship trees or mountains. That is our lot of false Messiah until God in His grace revealed to us Himself through Jesus they have absolute union and communion, and Jesus is showing us that all who reject and ignore his words will fall under the judgment of the Son of Man. How should this revelation be received? The fact that there is indeed a holy God, that all that we see and touch, the activities of our lives and days are not the final, finality of our lives. That there is going to be a day of judgment. There will be a time when the Son of God will speak and the power of His words will raise the dead and some will be given eternal life based on their faith in Jesus in the here and now. And those who rejected Jesus' words and rejected the Father who sent Him will be sent into everlasting torment. How should we respond to these realities? That because of our sin, we have made ourselves enemies of this holy God. That in fact, even as he reveals himself to us, we chafe at that. We don't want his authority. We don't want his supervision. We don't want his help. Jesus is asking us to hear and believe the reality is, He is the only way to know God. The reality is He alone has the power to give eternal life. There is no other way. None. Not good works. Not your system. Not another system. Not any other religion. No other person. A rejection of Jesus is a rejection of the Father. And a rejection of all hope of escaping the wrath to come. Verses 28 and 29 show us the Jews understood exactly what Jesus is saying. Guys, pick your chins up off the floor. Why are you shocked and amazed at what I'm saying to you? There is an hour coming when all who are in the tombs will hear my voice and they will come out. The day is coming when this powerful, life-giving word of God who is incarnate will raise the dead. Some to life everlasting and others to judgment and condemnation. You see, the life that Jesus is offering is a present reality and a future certainty. Spiritual rebirth here, today, guarantees you eternal life on that day. In John 5:30, Jesus said, "I can do nothing on my own. I hear, as I hear, I judge." And my judgment is, tr- is just. Why? Because I am not seeking my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I, Jesus is not motivated by getting a following. I mean, you think about how many times he could have pivoted away from the things that he did say and to embrace a more marketable message. He could have been the insignificant Messiah of their own imaginations, but that would have forfeited Him doing the Father's will. And He cannot do that. And so, Christian, if you're suffering for the faith, take heart in your Savior who forsook kin and kindred, home and comfort, who stayed true to His calling. He counted these things It says of Moses, he counted the things of the earth as as insignificant because he understood the realities. This is our Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, only those who hear what I say and do what I'm calling them to do can receive eternal life. And he reaffirms in verse 30 what he has said in verse 19. I told you that I didn't think we'd get through it all, and we won't. We'll pick up at verse 31 next week. But I'd encourage, or not next week, I won't be here. Um, I'd encourage you to read through these later this afternoon. Verses 31 through 47. And you see the arguments that Jesus makes. What the Father himself says to Jesus as a means of personal reaffirmation. What John the Baptist had said about Jesus. What the Father's works testify to. No one can do the things Jesus did if he weren't the real deal. And God's own voice is testimony that Christ is his son. Friend, I, I don't know where you're at this morning. If you are an unbeliever, you, you're being confronted with the truth of Jesus' statements. Make no mistake this is Jesus's, these are Jesus's words. He is not filtering them. He is not softening them. He's not either exaggerating them. Now, if you think he is exaggerating, then you are making a decision, and we respect that. But you need to make a well-informed decision. You need to wrestle with everything Jesus says. And then decide, will you believe it? Don't just take these initial comments. If you just popped in today for the first time, stick with us through the series of John's Gospel. Read. Take the Blue Bible home with you. It's a gift from our church to you. Read all of John's Gospel, and you will find like so many others who have read the Scriptures, that God's Word is alive. And, And it filters down into the dark recesses of your own heart to expose things, to point out arguments that you're holding on to, and then it just obliterates them with the truth. And we hope that we can be a help as you explore the claims of Christ. If you're a Christian, how do you hear these things? Oh man, with glory and joy and thankfulness. Because God didn't owe this to us. We are sinners who are indeed worthy of a right judgment and God in his grace has opened up the throne room of heaven to us and invited us to come in boldly through Christ's righteousness he saved us and this is a cause for joy of celebration and a cause for testifying with conviction these things are true about Jesus and then period let people wrestle with it but don't be ashamed of the truth take it and let it give you strength and backbone and courage for the day in which we live Lord God, we thank you for your great grace, the privilege to hear these things. Father, we simply pray that what Jesus has said about himself would be believed on by people in this room. That in it, you would indeed fulfill your promise For those who hear and believe the words of Jesus, and that you would grant eternal life, both in this day and in that day. And that God, you would give us a boldness, a strength, a conviction that the work Jesus has done is the work that he's called us to do, to follow him, even in the face of opposition to be a witness of his unique relationship with the Father, and that we as Christians, Lord, that you would grant us an understanding mind about these things. That life is in Christ and only in Christ. I pray that you would help us even as we conclude our service here in just a few moments and we go our separate ways, Lord. Let these things rest on our hearts to give us a hope, to give us a a strength, a perseverance in the faith, And Lord, we pray for much fruit, in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to ask if you would stand and we'll sing this song, how deep the Father's love for us, as a testimony, as it were, of, in fact, the great grace that God has shown us by giving us the truth. If we had not have heard about Jesus we would all be worshiping idols of our own making. God loves us. He loves you. And that's why he's shown us these things. Let's sing together.